0: Julia started her filmmaking career in Cairo, where she wrote and edited Control Room in 2004, which became one of the highest grossing political documentaries of all time. Five years later, in 2009, Julia then directed and produced the critically acclaimed film Budrus, which told the story of a Palestinian community organizer who united all Palestinian factions and Israelis to save his village from destruction by Israel's separation barrier. The film successfully shifted the way international media covered the protests as confirmed by an independent media audit by edelman pr most recently julia directed naila and the uprising in 2017. this chronicles the remarkable journey of naila ayesh whose story weaves through the most vibrant non-violent mobilization in palestinian history the first intifada naila and the uprising tells the remarkable journey of naila ayesh And a fierce community of women at the front lines, bringing out of anonymity the courageous women who have remained on the margins of historical memory. While most images of the first intifada create a kind of caricature of stone-throwing young men, this film tells the story that most people overlooked of an unbending, non-violent women's movement at the very head of the intifada. During her 2019 speaking tour, I was able to sit down and talk with her about the film, her life, how the film fits into her previous work, and portrayals of Palestinian resistance overall. Thanks so much for being with us, willing to do the podcast. To start, if you could just give us a quick rundown of Naivah and the uprising, um, just so the listeners who haven't had a chance to watch the film can kind of contextualize the rest of the interview.
1: Mm -hmm. So I've been a documentary filmmaker for the past 15 years. I've worked with uh, an organization called Just Vision, which I helped build. And Just Vision focuses on the stories of Palestinians and Israelis who are resisting the occupation and struggling to build a future of justice and equality in the region. We've made several documentary films, both feature and shorts, and Nile in the Uprising is our most recent film uh, released in late 2017.
0: Kind of digging a little bit deeper, the film's about Women's role in the First Intifada, right? Mm-hmm. So, with the the other films that you've made, um, "Budrus" and "My Neighborhood," as well as others, where do you see Naila fitting into that mm-hmm. story and the trajectory that you're mm-hmm. building?
1: Just visions films tend to build upon each other. Uh, we want the conversation around Israel and Palestine to change over time and to be more inclusive of what's going on at the civil society level. So when we made Budrus in 2010, our goal at the time was to break this idea that uh, there is no such a thing as nonviolent resistance happening in the region. There was an overwhelming amount of coverage of violence and of the breakdown of political diplomatic processes with a complete invisibility of Palestinian and Israeli civil society. And so, Budrus tells the story of a village in the West Bank that mobilized against the building of the wall on their lands. It was gonna be built, the wall was gonna be built on top of their cemetery. It was going to surround the village, eventually forcing the community to relocate from land which they have inhabited for generations. The community organized uh, with the support of Israeli activists and with the leadership of a young teenager called Tizamorar, who was 15 at the time. And together, the village managed to move the route of uh, the wall. That film marked um, a big moment for the organization because the film reached quite deep into um, mainstream American media coverage and started shifting a little bit the way that people talked about what was going on in the West Bank. Our next film, which was My Neighborhood, was a film that we wanted to do quickly to respond to an urgent need of what was going on in Jerusalem. So shortly after the building of the wall, there was an attempt by the Israeli government to take over Palestinian neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. And uh, it was a forced eviction of Palestinian families from homes that they had been living for decades. And we wanted to document the resistance that one particular neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah was building in opposition to these evictions to try to preserve the Palestinian nature of the this specific neighborhood. Um, so we made that film, it was a short, and the goal there was to really raise awareness about what was happening in Jerusalem and get people to become involved on an issue that was actively in development. The film was part of a movement that was managed to for five years stop the eviction of any other family from Sheikh Jarrah. And it showed to us that the importance of having people see a different, uh, basically put a different lens on how they see the Middle East was really critical. But that we needed to do deeper work and that this kind of just responding to contemporary events wasn't going to address what was a more systematic failure to understand the history of the region. What we noticed with some of our films like Budrus in My Neighborhood, when we would screen or when we would speak to journalists, was that people would say things like, oh, finally, Palestinians are using nonviolence. Or, oh, why haven't they done this before? With a, a really incorrect understanding of the history of the region and the history of Palestinian resistance. Mm-hmm. And that's what led us to want to make Nile-India uprising, uh, which was looking at the first intifada uh, which broke out in 1987, and really showing it as a civil resistance movement, revealing that it was uh, largely led by Palestinian women which is something that the international community uh, failed to see at the time, and historically has not been corrected yet. Uh, Many communities, even in Palestine itself, were not aware of that history anymore. For different political reasons, the history of the women's leadership at the time wasn't passed on to uh, younger generations, so we wanted very much to bring that story to Palestinian communities as well and that led to the creation of Nile India Uprising. Okay.
0: great and as for the, the, the form of the film, it seems to make use of a lot of different types of, of media, uh, animation, archival footage, interviews. Um, mm-hmm. How does the, the form, the structure and the aesthetic of the film reflect your goals in, in making it?
1: Mm-hmm. We wanted to help people connect with the story of these women that had led this movement under really difficult conditions. The challenge we faced was that there is generally already very little footage of popular resistance movements, so movements that are done by civil society tend to be done in a clandestine nature, so there is very little documentation of it, and also universally it tends to be the case that women's roles tends to not be documented in protest movements. And so there was very little footage of uh, the experience of these women at the time. And we knew that it was important to make people connect personally uh, to them and decided to use animation to achieve that goal. We were concerned about it because films or any kind of documentation of Palestinian history tends to lead to a lot of, it's, it's a very contentious already by its nature, and so the, to, do, to use animation could uh, maybe lead some people to question uh, the veracity of, of the storytelling. And what was pretty extraordinary for us was that the animation ended up being the sort of most meaningful and uh, emotional part of the film for the vast majority of audiences across contexts. So from uh, showing it to university students across the United States, to politicians uh, in Europe, to women in prison in Gaza, you know that have seen the film, to uh, Israeli activists in Jaffa, people when they speak after they've seen the film, the first thing that they tend to talk about is was the power of the animation, and that those drawings and those images really help them put themselves in those positions and and really stayed with them and resonated with them over time. And we faced very little questioning about it, which was an incredibly fulfilling. Yeah.
0: Wow. You mentioned briefly kind of, almost that you're making the film also for Palestinians themselves as a kind of living library of the Palestinian experience. Mm-hmm. So how do you conceptualize the role between um, making a film that is in one sense for an international audience mm. to change the way that people think about what's happening in Palestine and also this dual role of the film as a as a documentation of the Palestinian experience for
1: mm-hmm. Palestinians mm-hmm. it's a it's a very challenging process throughout the filmmaking uh, steps i have a colleague called Rula Salame who's a Palestinian from Bethlehem in East Jerusalem who has been my partner for 12 years now and making films and we've made all our films together and um, there is no way I would have could have made any of these films without her and she is, you know, really my guide into understanding the history of Palestinians. I'm not Palestinian myself and um, it's been an amazing process at working with her to both make sure that the story is true to the Palestinian experience and that it speaks to universal themes that are about being human that you can understand regardless of your cultural experience. And, and I think that there is, you know, both in the interview process and in the editing process and the animation process, it's, um, it's really collaborative work uh, with my team that, that kind of makes us make decisions and you know one decision at a time as we try to meet all you know the multiple goals of the film
0: um, as someone who's not Palestinian but who works mm-hmm. in that context how do you conceptualize your your role in that community mm-hmm. do you um, a lot of people have been talking about more transnational solidarities mm-hmm. are there, um, in your experience as a, as a Brazilian woman connecting mm-hmm. with Palestinian women, kind of how do you mm-hmm. think about that? Does it, uh, How do you find it affects your role as a filmmaker?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, there's multiple ways that I think about it, and it also has changed over time. I never intended to spend 15 years making films about this issue. I, you know, I, it was... It was an um, It was something that happened very organically and very naturally, one thing after the other. And my connection, obviously, to the region has grown tremendously over time. I think that being Brazilian, you know, being raised, grown up in a, you know, developing country, is um, is something that. It helped a lot connect, you know. The, the, there are a lot of similarities in culture, and um, and the um, the, the sort of some of the historical and political things are very different, but at the same time, very similar to have to do with colonialism. And and so, I think that that has that all happened very naturally. There wasn't really a kind of a, a plan in my mind to, to do any of that. It was more about relationship building and meeting people and feeling useful and feeling like the the work that I was doing was connecting with Palestinian communities, with international communities, and then feeling that there was this other story that was really urgent and and, and feeling like the community wanted um, me there documenting and, and being present. And so, so all of that has felt really good. At the same time, I'm also very conscious that I'm not Palestinian and that I've spent 15 years making stories about Palestinians and that in an ideal world, there, there would be more Palestinians who have the chance and the visibility that I had. And I think that one of the reasons why I've been able to actually get my films into the top film festivals and get films broadcast on television is because I'm not Palestinian. And I think that's really problematic and awful and it needs to change. And so I think for me, over the years, as it, as it became clear that I was making multiple films, which wasn't the intention originally, I think it became equally important to figure out how to stop making films, you know, and, and, and really uh, encourage uh, more Palestinian storytellers to be able to get their rightful space in the sort of international spaces that I've been able to, to work in
0: to dig a little bit deeper into that the the content of the films you in in other interviews that i've seen with you you've mentioned that nonviolent resistance it's and and the role of women in it it's not your work is not to portray it as this kind of essentialist thing where like it's not saying that women aren't capable of violence or anything like Mm -hmm. that but i guess could could you talk a little bit about the the role that women's experiences as women living in across the world in contexts where repression is a pretty constant thing lends itself to particular modes of organizing for justice.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for me, making Nyland uprising was interesting because this, the the story of women protesting is is a universal story, right? It's not, it's always happened. Women are always heavily involved uh, when communities organize against oppression. They form the backbones to make sure that the community survives, that the families are stable, that neighborhoods have food, uh, that they are safe. And yet these stories are often completely invisible. This is a universal, this is not about Palestinian story. And one of the things that we wanted very much to to avoid was this feeling, there's two things. One was this idea that what happened at the end with these women that organized the first intifada only happened because Palestinian society is patriarchal. Right, so at the end of the film, Spoiler alert, you know, the, this Palestinian women who sacrificed so much and really led this uprising that led to the possibility of Palestinians for the first time representing themselves in the international arena in the diplomatic process, they are sidelined by their own leadership, by their fellow Palestinians coming back from Tunisia. And we we very much wanted to avoid this. the response being, oh, Palestinian and Arab patriarchal society. Uh, because that happens all the time when women take leadership roles in protest movements. The other thing was this idea that you reference, which is that you know the solution is for women to lead, and everything is fine if we've all if women lead, then we're fine. There's going to be peaceful movements, and no violence will occur because women are these peaceful creatures. Which um, I don't believe, <laughs> and I think we have plenty of examples uh, to, um, to show that, that that's not true. Uh, and yet, I think what is true, and I think resonates pretty universally, and I think any women in the world, no matter what ended up happening in her life, and how powerful she ended up becoming, and violent she ended up becoming, will recognize that in her life she had to operate in different ways from the time she was born. And to navigate the world was necessary to find different ways of achieving what she wanted to do. And that direct confrontation was often gonna lead to failure for her and that she needed to find alternative ways. And that alternative way is often very strategic. Uh, There's thought put into it and doesn't involve violence because violence is 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 not on her favor <laughs> and so I think that's until we have a world where women are treated as equal we are going to be seeing that women tend to find different ways to achieve goals that tend to be less violent than the ways that men would choose if that makes sense
0: <laughs> no, it does make sense and I guess I'm thinking of some recent historians of the civil rights movement in the American South mm. have written work that kind of complicates the dichotomy of violent versus nonviolent. I'm thinking particularly about a book called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Mm. And I, I wonder if in documenting the Intifada and other Palestinian experiences yeah. On the ground in Palestine, do people think about violent, -violent Mm, nonviolent in this kind of uh, dichotomy, Mm. or is it more that what is strategic is what is taken up?
1: Mm -hmm. So, the word, the best translation to how Palestinians talk about, for example, what they did during the First Intifada is it's popular, right? It's the idea that is widespread and that it involves a large portion of the population and takes place from a sort of a civil society perspective. That's how Palestinian society sees it more and talk about it more, which is is counter to, for example, what might come more from militant factions. And I think those conversations happen in in Palestinian civil societies. I think they happen in, you know, Oppressed communities worldwide about what is, what is strategic, what is right, what is moral, what people can go to bed and sleep and feel good about what they just did. Uh, we're all humans and, and we're all making those decisions. And sometimes you, you know, decisions are made out of incredible rage and trauma. And that happens as well.
0: Where do you see things moving in the future? Maybe this is a bit of a a difficult question to answer because Mm -hmm. the political situation, um, particularly now, is a little bit, not unstable, but maybe unpredictable. How do you see things changing on the ground? How do you see your role as a filmmaker changing in this context where the pressure on Palestinians is really, really amping up?
1: Mm What I've seen in over the you know past fifteen years of n- making films, and what I've hear right from my colleagues who live there. So we were recently, you know, yesterday we had a, a call where we were just sharing a little bit about what's happening with the outreach of Nile India uprising. Uh One of our co-producers is called Fadia Bushamal, and he's lives in Gaza, and he's also doing the distribution of the film in Gaza which has been fascinating to hear the responses from people there to the film at a time. So we started doing the outreach just as the Great March of Return had started. And it's been very powerful to to see people getting inspiration from the stories and, and really saying things like, oh, we didn't know that this had happened this way and that women had played such a large role. And women on the ground feeling really inspired by that. And I would say that the Great March of Return for me was like one of the most surprising, shocking things because I have been documenting like civil resistance and so I shouldn't be surprised maybe but I was so shocked that the population in Gaza had after everything that has happened to them and all the wars and all the death and the decimation of that community that they had the spirit to go to the border and do what they did and to sustain that for so long. And I was really just both profoundly moved and also just horrified that one, the the response, the military response and the bloodshed that they were met with, but also the silence from the international community that it was so clearly a like last resort of saying screaming and saying we are here we need you we need the international community to pay attention to this and to do something about it israeli actions need to be held accountable this behavior needs to have accountability and the fact that there is like no accountability and and so i am you know very worried about what the Palestinian population will suffer and what they're going to go through uh, in the coming years. And I'm also, you know, if the great march of return is any sign, the Palestinian population has a lot of resilience to survive. And, and so I think that's a community that has gone through a lot and, and really can sustain and has shown over and over a love for life that I think gives me hope, and um, and, I, and I am hopeful to see, not yet at the level of governments, but the level of civil society, changes that might still take some time for it to have like a real impact on holding Israel accountable. But I think that there are conversations in civil society happening in the United States that i think if it continues to develop and the space for dissent is not closed in america that i think we are in a better place in that conversation than we were 15 years ago when i started this work
0: well thank you for taking the time out of your day to (laughs) to talk about these uh both very exciting and uplifting and also a little bit depressing issues but um Thank you for your work. Thanks for talking
1: to us. Thank you for having me.
2: You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program, and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at a hour dot com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.